Kevin Markwick. Warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. It was early morning yesterday. I was up before the dawn. And I really have enjoyed my stay. But I must be moving on Like a king without a castle Like a queen without a throne I'm a early morning lover And I must be moving on Now I believe in what you say Is the undisputed
Supertramp from their monster-selling album Breakfast in America from 1979, of course. Well, not of course. That's why I'm playing it. It's because it's from 19... Oh, whatever. Hello, it's Kevin Markwick here. I've got the uh, one too many Sherry's voice on from last night, I'm afraid. Uh, Yes. And so here we are. It's 1979 in our trawl through the 70s. Through the lens of my cinema, the picture house in Upfield. And my ever-sprouting body from the age of, what, eight? Yeah, eight. To 18. All sorts goes on, doesn't it? Let's face it. So, uh, Sid Vicious is dead of a heroin overdose at the age of 21. Everyone was striking all over the place. And the winter of discontent was upon us ultimately forcing a general election and uh, sweeping Margaret Thatcher to power as the first female Prime Minister. This really is mumbling round midnight stuff. Are you all tucked up, cosy in bed? Well, if you are at seven, (laughs) then you're probably feeling worse than I do. The Jubilee line opens, as does the nudist beach in Brighton, and the clash... Nudist Beach. No, it's not a band. Um, it was a nudist beach with nudie people on it. And the Clash released London Calling at the cinema in Uckfield. It's the single most important year in its history since the day it opened. Um, it was the year we went from one screen to two. A big move that involved borrowing lots of money, but a move that ultimately saved the cinema from almost certain doom. Um... Those who have been following the show will know the plummeting admissions nationally and in Uckfield were making it increasingly difficult to keep the business afloat. From a high in 1946 of 1,600 million a year. Can you imagine? 1,600 million people. I would be doing this show live from a Vegas hot tub if that many people went to the cinema now. Uh, audiences had fallen to just 111 million by 1979. It's a spectacular decline, isn't it? Um, my dad bought the cinema in Uckfield in 1964, and it was pretty run down, so he made the seats more comfortable by taking some out, oddly. Uh, it had been 510 seats when we arrived, and he reduced that down to 310 to improve legroom and comfort. And I seem to remember we had wooden chairs in the front four rows for some reason, which he made the children sit in on Saturday afternoon. Front four rows only. Kids, front four rows only, front four rows only. Oh, dear. Can you imagine the parents on the phone now? Have we tried those tricks? Um, The business had received a lift in the early 1970s when Lewis and Crowborough lost their cinemas, but the need to spend some dosh on the place and the general fall in audience numbers meant something had to be done. Uh, not least, uh, build some decent toilets. Um, so he drew up the plans to split the building and work started at the end of 1978. That was very strange. We dug up the back of the stalls to build the footings for the new toilet block 
Uh, it's a bit difficult to describe if you haven't seen it, or even if you have seen it, you can't really picture it. If you imagine a cinema with stalls and a, and a raised area at the back, which is a circle, or the balcony, um, and then so we put new toilets in the back of the old stalls, so you had to go basically round them to get to the other side. <laughs> what he did actually was put some scaffolding planks over it so that we <laughs> so that you had to walk across these scaffolding planks to get to the seats at the front while we were doing a bit of that building uh, again i can't imagine it passed any health and safety uh requirements um anyway uh yes footings the new toilet block uh and the last show on screen one was at the end of january uh 19 79 we talked about that last week and when the work had gone too far and we couldn't continue to run so we shut down for three whole months uh, the longest the cinema had been dark in its history uh, but i still wanted to go to the cinema god damn it <laughs> i needed to see films um so one of the trips i made while we were closed was to tunbridge wells actually I hadn't i don't think i'd been there before oddly um at the old abc to see Peter Hyam's tremendous sci-fi thriller, Capricorn One, about a faked Mars landing. And it was in uh, 70 mil. They had 70 mil in there, um, which I'm not sure what that meant to people at that time. It would have been a 35 mil blow up. But still, the idea of 70 mil, quite local, was quite exciting. Um, and it was in the old Screen One, the ABC Screen One. It's since been knocked down, of course. Um, and one of the most impressive things about it, though, is a classically rambunctious Jerry Goldsmith score.
Kevin Markwick. That's a bingo. I've always been the kind of man who doesn't believe in strings. Long-term obligations are just unnecessary things. But girl, you've got me thinking while I'm drinking one more beer. If I'm headed for a heartache, then why the hell am I still here? I'm testing my resistance And it's wearing mighty thin I've got the feeling I should leave Before the roof caves in My mind tells me to move along But my body begs me stay And now I feel the need to hold you close and love the night away While you're turning me Every which way but lose You turn me Every which way but lose Inside the fire's burning me In my mind you just keep turning me Every which way but lose Baby there's no excuse to turn me Every which way but lose When the sun comes up in the morning It should find me someplace new But right this minute All I want is to lay here next to you Those memories still keep calling me from somewhere in my past Better hurry if they want me Cause I can feel me fading fast While you're turning me Every which way but lose You turn me every which way but lose Inside the fire's burning me In my mind you just keep turning me Every which way but lose Baby, there's no excuse To turn me every which way But lose Yes Eddie Rabbit, Every Which Way But Loose from the Clint Eastwood comedy film of the same name about a man and an orangutan. Yep, that was the first film to play in the spangly new picture house in Uckfield, seven days, Sunday, March the 18th, 1979. Uh, so that's what we're doing. It's 1979 in my trawl through the 1970s, year by year. Um, we've got three more shows to go. <laughs> And we're still trying to work out what to do. Um, but do get in touch, actually, if you've been listening or if you've been listening on the podcast, please do. Let me know what you think. Did you go to the cinema uh, in Uckfield in the 70s? Do you remember when we opened two screens, uh, the conversion from one to two? It'd be really great to hear from you what memories you have or uh, any stories that you've got. Um, we weren't quite finished, actually. Uh, screen one was not ready to open. 
And like all these kind of things, I clearly remember the carpet fitters still sticking carpet down as the first customers for the new Screen 2 came up the stairs. In fact, because we had stairs both sides, it's the old balcony. What we did actually, um, I'll bore you with this for a second. If you imagine we built a wall up the middle, imagine just a cinema, a whole auditorium, and we built a wall up the middle of it. And um, the old balcony became the new Screen 2 which is the one we're talking about now. And screen one, we put around uh, behind the new toilets, if you like, on the other side of the wall, and we pointed it the other way. So the projection box was on the old, where the old screen was, pointing back at the same wall. So the screens are back to back. Message me if you want to get more information on that one. It's very difficult to describe on the radio. Um, but it was actually a really good conversion, to be honest. He'd um, worked really hard on that. He came up with the design himself. And he'd gone to various very professional and cinema uh, engineers and um, architects. And uh, in the end, he just stayed local, actually. And uh, it was a builder called Doug Turl, uh, MTC Brickwork, who did all the work. Fantastic work that they did. And they came in at the right price. I do remember the day he got Doug Turl's price. <laughs> he was so happy because now we could actually do it. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was about... £16,000 to do the um, do the work on the conversion. Obviously, that didn't include carpets and seats and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't sound much now, does it? But it was a lot of money at the time and a lot of risk. Anyway, we were still trying to get the curtains to work properly at 2am that morning. I remember that very clearly. Because um, the guy installing them had brought the wrong size drum. Because when you... Curtains... You have uh, a cable that runs you know, through the curtains to make them open and close. It goes one way... As the drum turns, and then the drum turns the other way. Well, if you've got the wrong size, they go at the wrong speed. <laughs> um, often you see them too slow. But uh, these went at about a 1,000 miles an hour. It was hilarious. The tops of the curtains got to the edge of the proscenium arch before the bottoms had even moved. <laughs> it caused absolute hoots of laughter from the first audiences that were in. I think it took about a week about a week to get a new drum down and uh, we called them the bionic tabs kind of a, a tabs is what uh, we cinema folk call curtains but it was very very funny uh, why tabs why are we why did we bother right then having tabs well he was very clear that he wanted to make miniature cinemas and not just the boxes that had been built by circuit cinemas black horrible often orange painted boxes uh, with no uh, atmosphere at all he very much wanted to make a smaller version of a proper cinema uh, which I think he succeeded. Uh, he really did. Um, we had 99 seats in screen two at that time in what was uh, the old balcony. Uh, and with the new toilets and the coverage in the local press, it, I have to say it had an instant effect. 748 admissions for the week out of 792 available seats. Uh, no matter on Saturday, it seems, he was still clearly not ready for that that thinking out of the box, outside of the box, uh, that would come 10 years down the line, actually when I spent more money, uh, my first refurb um, when I was in charge uh, in 1989, and we spent a lot of money, we gutted the place again, only 10 years later, to put in bigger seats and all that kind of stuff. But that's for another series. So far, so good then. Uh, would week two prove as successful? Well, apparently so. Alan Parker's film Midnight Express had them rolling in the aisles. Seven days from the 25th of March. Um, it was a tad old by then, actually, but it did well enough. 680 admissions 
the true story of American tourist William Hayes, who'd been lured by cash into taking cannabis out of Turkey and been caught at the airport. In What You Have to Say is one of the great tense openings in any film ever. It's very sweaty. Um, uh, like me, right now. <laughs> Stop it. Especially as you know full well he's going to get caught. That's the thing. You know he's going to get caught. That's what the film's about. But it's really, really tense. Uh, and the score, which is kind of famous now because it's uh, by the great granddaddy of disco electronica, Giorgio Moroder. Midnight Express, Giorgio Moroder. Now, after Midnight Express, we had a quiet week in Sexy New Screen 2 with the rather underrated thriller Magic, uh, directed by Richard Attenborough and starring Anthony Hopkins as an increasingly insane ventriloquist who believes his dummy is taking over and sabotaging his life and murdering people and stuff. Yeah, what I wouldn't give for a woodpecker. Uh, however, at the end of that week, on Saturday the 7th of April, uh, Screen 1 opened. Um, for the first time in history, Uckfield had a multi-screen cinema. A big moment, really. Um, that new screen, which was basically the stalls turned the other way round, remember I tried to explain that to you? With the new projection box and the old stage and all that. It had 140 seats. 
a low-key sort of a day. 45 people for the day in there on the Saturday. Uh, I can't. I, I sort of remember it opening, but not very well. I'm not quite sure why. I think I was supposed to be at school. No, not school on a Saturday, but you know, anyway, whatever. Um, and we opened the cinema with The 39 Steps, another remake of John Buchan's story that had already been filmed by uh, Alfred Hitchcock in 1935 and again in 1959. This time Robert Powell was playing Richard Hannay and it did really well from the Sunday onwards. 1,223 admissions for the week. Now. Yeah. And here is the instant effect of multiple screens. Screen 2 added 423 admissions, which is the kind of number we were getting if you've been sort of following 400, 500 a week, well, then you add that to the 1,223 admissions, um, then you get 1,646 admissions for the week. See what we did there? With some pretty ordinary product. Now that would have been beers all round if that had been uh, in the single screen. It was actually a wedding in screen two. A somewhat forgotten uh, Robert Altman, which I seem to remember enjoying at the time. One of his ensemble cast things. Anyway, here's uh, some of the very English, very agreeable sort of a score from 39 Steps. Welch's score for The 39 Steps with uh, Robert Powell and David Warner and Karen Detrice and John Mills and Timothy West. All very English and very nice. We still have that. Uh, we, until recently, still had the quad up in our, in our sort of uh, archive wall. Rather nice art deco quad. But it was the first film ever to play 
in screen one at uh, the Picture House in Uckfield. Right, when we come back, um, we've got some more John, endless John Williams, isn't there, in the 70s? And we've got some more of it after this. Something special, really different. Tastes great. Frankie's spicy pork and beef sausage in a sesame seed roll. Topped with mustard, tomato or fruity sauce. Frankie's, the super hot dog. On sale at the kiosk now. Frankie's, from Lyon. Kevin Markwick. 105, Uckfield FM.
yes, John Williams score for Superman the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's best not to do voices, really, isn't it? Um, which was great. Uh, and actually, it doesn't get uh, as much recognition as some of the other stuff he's done, I don't think, but it is a fantastic score. Uh, and I remember the... Because that was long opening credits, wasn't it? Very long. Uh, with all the coming in and whoosh, and everyone in their right contractual place. Uh, and then there was another eight minutes on the end, which actually, tactical error, I have to tell you now, was the last reel of the film. So uh, reel eight, or whatever it was, was all credits. So we generally left it in the tin. Much easier in those days. Can't cut them out with digital. The endless, ridiculous credits. Kill the credit man. Kill him dead. We want to go home. So, we're cooking with gas now in our super new twin cinema. The second week uh, of full-on operations saw Superman flying into Uckfield. See what I did there? Having been released in London at the end of December, I can only assume the wider release was for Easter. And off it went. Week one, 1,795 admissions. And he played it three times a day. Oh, my God. Uh, and at the risk of labouring a point I'm actually going to continue to make, uh, in screen two we added 702 admissions with a reissue programme of a week. Um, Jason and the Argonauts and Mysterious Island, which were both very old by that point. I think it was a proper reissue. Columbia had put them out again. I've got the quad, so it must, be, it must have been an actual reissue. So that brought the week up to 2,497 admissions. Almost into single-screen record-breaking territory already. Whee! Superman was a massive production. Uh, up to that point, it was the most expensive film ever made, which is a brilliant story in itself and worth uh, looking out uh, all the books on the subject. It's fascinating. Uh, fortunately, it went on to become a massive global hit. It had a huge cast, including a wonderfully camp performance by Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor and a pitch-perfect Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. But the key to how well the film works is the performance by Christopher Reeve as Superman, stroke Clark Kent. DC Comics wanted James Kahn or Steve McQueen, which is insane, of course. Reeve was an unknown at the time, but his audition blew the producers away and they lobbied hard for the studio to agree to the casting. The rest is history. Any famous actor would have looked ridiculous, but Reeve embodied both aspects of the character with skill. The poster declared, you'll believe a man can fly, and the effects look great. Probably look a bit dated now. Um, and his suit seemed to change colour from time to time. Especially in long shot, it sort of went green. But anyway, for my money, it was much more uh, what a comic book movie should be. Light, funny, um, camp and entertaining. Without all the sort of po-face taking itself too seriously we get now. Especially from DC. <gasps> Oh, that last, oh, those Superman, Batman-y, Superman, Batman v Superman v Superman. <gasps> so boring. Uh, the score, uh, John Williams, of course, was, uh, who was operating at his peak at this time. I mean, he was right in the thick of it, wasn't he? Star Wars, Close Encounters, Superman. Uh, and here's one of the best cues, actually. It's called Leaving Home.
Leaving Home from Superman, the movie in 1979. Now, that, that's one of the great shots in the film at the um, cornfield and the camera rises up and you see him coming towards and then there's the, the, watching the lovely sunset. Whether it's true or not, because the, um, the film was photographed by uh, Jeffrey Unsworth, but that was actually a second, I think, I believe, I might be wrong, disabuse me of the notion if you know better, but I believe that was the second unit that shot that and um, they waited a week or something, that was the story. Well, they two weeks, the second unit were out waiting for the sunset over that, over that cornfield. I, I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. But, you know, I might be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. Um, so a reasonable-sized hit from 1979 was California Suite based on Neil Simon's Broadway hit play about various couples in a posh hotel in Los Angeles. A tremendous cast, including Richard Pryor and Jane Fonda, Alan Alder, um, and in my favourite story, Elaine May and Walter Matow as the husband trying to hide the comatose hooker in his bed from his recently arrived wife, who his brother has bought him, but she's kind of passed out. Uh, one of the reasons it was a hit in the UK, presumably was the Maggie Smith-Michael Caine story about a sozzled British actress not winning the Academy Award. Caine shows brilliant comic timing. I'm not sure, have we seen him in comedy up to that point, 79? I'm not sure we had, not, not proper comedy, anyway. Um, he revelled in Simon's rhythmic wordplay, but the star is definitely uh, Maggie Smith, who ironically did win a real Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Diane Barry, the nervous nominee. Uh, she's hilarious. Now, I've got some... The musical score, actually, is very good by somebody <laughs> whose name escapes me, a famous jazz musician. I had it up here on the screen a moment ago. Um, it was um, Claude Bolling. Now, I don't know about jazz. If you know about jazz, you might say, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, it was a rather pleasant score, but I'm also going to play some dialogue. I don't normally do this, but, um, you know, it's it just to get, cause very, get very difficult to imagine just how wonderfully snappy this dialogue was. And uh, we'll segue into some of the rather nice jazz score as well. OK, you ready? Tequila. You never told me what award I missed when I went to the camp. Best documentary short subject. Oh, damn it. My favourite category. What one? The Midgets of Leipzig. A Czech-Polish production. Zygmunt Vinetsky producer. Directed by Litvar Zombredovich and Stefan Vletch. Mm. I thought they would. What was the best picture? The best picture? You were there when they announced it. It came after the best actress. I was in a deep depression at the time. What was the best bloody picture? You mean what was the best picture of the year, or what did those idiots pick as the best picture of the year? What won the award, you asshole? I am not an asshole. Don't you call me that. Sydney, I have just thrown up on some of the best people in Hollywood. Now is no time to be sensitive. What was the best picture? I'm not telling you. I'm not asking you. I'm threatening you, you crud! Now, I'm definitely not going to tell you. I'm sorry, I take it back, Sydney. You're not a crowd. <coughs> Am I still an asshole? Definitely. Then I'm never going to tell you. You behaved abominably tonight. Did not. Abominably. Did not. A bum. Arsehole, crud. I am going to bed. We have a 10 a.m. plane to catch in the morning. 10 a.m. is the morning. That is redundant. U A H. <laughs> Thank you. 
part of Claude Bolling's score for um, California Sweet, which is great fun. If you've never seen it, uh, have a look. It's got one serious story in it, the one with Alan Alder and Jane Fonda, which is not as funny. Um, but Jane Fonda's really good in that, in that sequence. Anyway, you're listening to The Kevin Markwick Show on a Monday night, Uckfield FM. Uh, get in touch with the show on Twitter, at Kevin Markwick. Let me know what you think. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, thank you all. Well done, everybody. It's really good to know you're out there. Hello, are you out there? Is this thing on? This is my best material. Anyway, I've got to do a break now. Uh, and when we come back, uh, where are we going? All over the place. Warship down. Coming home. James Bond, of course. He's never far away, let's face it. All right, here we go. Here's something for everyone. Science made in a cup for everyone. Science made on a stick for everyone. Science made is chocolate. Kevin Markwick, 105, Uckfield FM.
The other John Williams. The one that's not the composer. The one that's the guitarist. Classical guitarist playing Cavatina, uh, which was kind of rebranded as the theme from The Deer Hunter. Um, when in actual fact, it was originally in a film called The Walking Stick, which was based on Winston Graham's novel uh, back in 1970. And was used in that. And uh, obviously... The director of The Deer Hunter, Michael Cimino, decided he quite liked it and would use it. But it sort of got rebranded, really. Um, and it won every Oscar going, I believe. Which, uh, But it pretty much tanked in Uckfield, actually. Um, I'll never forget it, as it was pretty much full-time in the box by then. Or I was, anyway, the projection box. Um, for some reason, my dad had felt the need to keep showing films in the old-fashioned way dual projection, carbon arcs. This is in 1979. This is old, really old technology. Carbon arcs being literally two carbon rods um, that you pish together like that, pshht, and then you pull them apart, and then what happens? You get a negative one and a positive one. You get a flame. You've seen that. It's sort of like a welding flame, really. And that's what uh, made the light. I mean, obviously, uh, xenon lamps, which are uh, nothing like as messy had already been invented, but no, he decided <laughs> we're having it, we're doing it the old-fashioned way. Um, which, of course, meant that uh, I mean, dual projection, meaning that you change from one to the other. You couldn't run the film in one go. The te Again, the technology already existed. ABCs and people like that were running what we call cake stands, which is a, or a platter, which was the film lies on its side on a plate. Big, giant plate. It literally looks like a giant cake stand. And the film lies on its side and it comes out of the middle and goes through the projector and then back onto another plate. So you never have to rewind it because it always comes out of the middle. And all this stuff existed, automation, all that kind of stuff. But no, he went and bought these secondhand projectors for some reason. Maybe it was cheaper, the money had run out. I, I honestly don't know. But it meant we needed two projectionists because you couldn't have one projectionist doing changeovers at either end of the building. Um, that kind of uh, wouldn't have worked. I don't know, maybe it improved the profit. Uh, projectionists at the time uh, we had also wasn't especially mobile. Maybe that was it. Uh, difficult to say. Anyway, The Deer Hunter had 448 admissions in the week, the 13th of May. And boy, it went on. I actually, it was one of my first big um, cock-ups in the projection box because it had an interval in it. And I laced up the wrong reel. <laughs> We did the interval and I started it again and opened the curtains and, uh, yes, the whole wrong part of the film was on. I'd skipped forward by about an hour, which was a bit embarrassing. But you live and learn, or as Douglas Adams says, you live anyway. The following week, however, was rather splendid. Watership Down was back. It was one of the last films to play in the single screen and had done great business and it was one you could keep bringing back. The song Bright Eyes, Bright Eyes had been a monster hit months after the film's release and was number one in the charts for six weeks in April and May 1979. It was also a popular book and was British. So it kind of hit all the targets for us. An animated adaption of Richard Adams' uh, decidedly uncuddly story of a warren of rabbits searching for a new home, featuring all sorts of disturbing scenes that would struggle to get past producers in the risk-averse world of animation now. It was very good. I thought it was very good. Um, and I don't... Do you think there's anything wrong with showing kids a tough side of life? I don't know. Maybe that's not for discussion here, but... 
I've been trying to get the team to play it on a Saturday morning, but I said, no, they'd be horrified. Kids would run screaming from the theatre. You say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, with the very British voice talents of John Hurt, Harry Andrews as the baddie rabbit, and Richard Bryars. The quintessentially British-sounding score is lovely, and um, by Angela Morley. 1,865 admissions for the week, May the 20th. These are two cues here, one called Venturing Forth, which is lovely, and the other, Kiha's theme.
Angela Morley's music from Watership Down in 1979. Um, rather nice, I think. Kiha, the big black-headed gull, um, was voiced by uh, the wonderful Zero Mostel. Big water! Uh, he had damaged wings. The character in the film, obviously not Zero Mostel. Uh, and he hangs out with the rabbits until he gets better. I think he becomes their air reconnaissance, doesn't he? When they go and attack the other, or protect themselves, or attack the other um, Warren with a nasty... What was he called? Is it Woundwort or something? The nasty rabbit. Uh, anyway, so it's all going very well in the two-screen version of the picture house. Admissions are up, the place is comfy, and you don't even have to go outside to have a wee anymore. Reason to be optimistic, I feel. And we're only five years away from the national low point of cinema attendance in 1984. <gasps> it's like waiting for the shortest day. It might not feel like it, but things will begin to turn. Now, um, here's a great film no one came to see. It had been released in May 1978, apparently, but was reissued because John Voight and Jane Fonda had both won Oscars for their performances in Hal Ashby's Coming Home. Now, I think you all know how much I love Hal Ashby. And Coming Home is another remarkable work. The story of a wheelchair-bound Vietnam vet and his affair with the wife of an officer who's currently in Vietnam himself. Coming Home was conceived by Jane Fonda as the first feature for her own production company, uh, inspired by her friendship with activist Ron Kovic, who Tom Cruise would play in Born on the Fourth of July later in the... When would that be? In the 80s, late 80s. Oliver Stone's film. The screenplay would also win the Academy Award. It's an incredibly powerful story about the damage war does to people who have to fight it and the people that are left behind. The sense of futility is palpable and very moving. This track uh, is used at the end of the film when Voigt's character is giving his side of the story to a group of college students, begging them not to join up, while we also follow uh, the cuckolded and war-damaged Bruce Dern who's come home and he, he, he takes all his clothes off and goes into the sea, never to return. Um, it really is a remarkable sequence. You can see it on YouTube. But now just watch the whole film. Watch the whole blinking film because it's just brilliant. Um, and despite all this talent on show, only 289 people turned up to see it. That's even less than Taxi Driver back in 1976. Anyway, this is uh, Tim Buckley, Once I Was. And then uh, when we come back after the break, it will be the last Bond of the 1970s. I was a soldier And I fought on foreign sands for you Once I was a hunter And I brought home fresh meat for you Once I was a lover Another to tell you 
just a lie And sometimes I You can obtain leading brands of cigarettes and confectionery.
Moonraker was Dodger's fourth outing as Bond and was the most expensive Bond to be made up to that point, costing twice as much as The Spy Who Loved Me, apparently. Uh, Bond nerds will know that uh, on the end of Spy Who Loved Me, actually, it declared James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. Now, presumably, the stonking success of Star Wars meant the Bond producers needed to have uh, Bond go into space. For Your Eyes Only would actually be the next one in 1981. Um, it was also the third time Shirley Bassey sung the theme song after Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. Here in Uckfield, it was another landmark. Now, listeners who've been listening will know that we started the decade with James Bond films playing months and months after release, mostly because of our status in the release pecking order. Now, with uh, two screens available, my dad felt he was in a position to take a few more programming risks and after years of missing out on earlier bookings of, uh, you know, uh, earlier bookings, bookings playing the film earlier, yes, uh, for Godfather, which never played as a result of their uh, booking demands, Jaws and Star Wars, let's not go there again. He agreed to UA's terms for a pre-London release run on Moonraker. Uh, two weeks before the London release, I believe... Uh, and the terms being that he had to play it for four weeks. <sighs> now, this was still pretty outrageous, actually, as it had opened in the West End in June and had played coastal cinemas only from the start of July. Uh, I think we went through that last week, or the week before last, when we talked about Spy Love Me, so rewind back to there, and uh, you'll see what I mean by coastals only. Daft policy. Uh, so Brighton had been showing it for weeks. Uh, however... It was a step forward and opened in Uckfield on August the 19th. Now, with hindsight, it wasn't a super spectacular result. Uh, looking at the numbers, 1,936 admissions week one. Um, to give that some context, week one of Skyfall in 2012, we had 4,978 admissions. Uh, quite different. Moonraker week two was 941, then 735, then 452. Hmm. Again, looking at it through a modern lens, this would be partly because he was still not running enough shows. In fact, the times were a bit weird. The first week was fine, three a day. Well, hey, um, two o'clock, six o'clock, and 830. 
although it was only twice on Sunday, 4.40 and 8.30 or 7.30 or something, because uh, I think we've mentioned this before, uh, uh, you know, we, we couldn't start until at least after half past three on a Sunday because we had to have lunch first. <laughs> Always had lunch. One o'clock, hell or high water, thousand degrees outside, roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, <sighs> whatever. Um, but this is revolutionary stuff. You know, the second week he went off the rails a bit, six o'clock and 8.30, with only one show on Saturday at two o'clock because of the blinking carnival. So he was shut carnival night, so it was one show uh, Saturday at two o'clock. But only doing it at six o'clock and 8.30 and no matinee seems a bit weird to me. It seems that we had, um, I'd looked in the book, and we had Dumbo and a spaceman and King Arthur in the other screen, and he was... Um, kind of uh, keeping screen one empty in case we needed to use that for for Dumbo. Whether we did or not, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Uh, third and fourth week, it went down to once nightly. The old once nightly routine, once at eight o'clock. That's it. Thank you very much. Uh, nevertheless, he considered the experiment a success and would continue to do this for the rest of the Bonds until the daft coastal only thing came to an end, which wouldn't be until the living daylights, I don't think, in 1987. Moonraker is another example of how two screens was working to our advantage. It was still early days, you know, still feeling it out. It was also the first time I ever went to a trade show, as we called them then. Uh, he and I went together. One of the few times I actually went to see a film with my dad. The Bond trade show was always a special event and was usually at the Odeon Leicester Square. I still have the handout, actually, that they handed out there. Uh, I bought the soundtrack album and I, I put that uh, handout inside that. And I had a look the other day and it's still there. John Barry was back writing the score and is one of the best things about the film. Here's my favourite cue. Uh, it's called Flight Into Space and it's very John Barry. <laughs>
Now is the time. Time for ice cream. Ice cream time. It's ice cream time with Lion's Mane. Ice cream time with Lion's Mane. Kevin Markwick. 105. Uckfield FM. He's more machine now than man. Twisted and evil. So, oh, mm. so the year ended on a big high. Star Trek: The Motion Picture, a film we thought we'd never see. Paramount had been announcing it for years, almost since the series ended in 1969, and it was a big production with all spangly new sets and costumes. Slightly odd, cause they looked like they were in their pajamas to me. Maybe they were in their pajamas. And modern special effects uh, and the original cast reassembled, so anticipation was very high. Um, I'd actually, uh, I wasn't working in the cinema at the time. <laughs> I buggered off to London, got a job with Odeon. I'd failed on my O-levels and couldn't get into college, so I went to work in London instead. That showed them, huh? Like anybody cared. I went to work for Odeon at the Odeon Hammersmith. But that's a whole other story that we don't want to get into here. Um, yeah, so Star Trek, the motion picture, two-time Academy Award-winning director Robert Wise was at the helm and all was set fair. It opened in the US early December and turned in the highest-grossing weekend of all time up to that point. Critics were less kind, though. Bar uh, Barry Norman famously called it Star Trek, the motionless picture. And general audiences found it rather slow. And to be fair, it is... But as a Star Trek fan, I'm quite happy to watch the Enterprise cross the screen slowly over and over and over again. I showed it recently to uh, my youngest son and I watched it. And he was bored out of his mind. What? Is anything going to happen? Ever? Yeah, lots. Um, he didn't talk like that, actually. <laughs> that was like a Simpsons character, isn't it? Oh, no. Um... Robert Wise was never happy with the finished film, actually, because uh, he, he had to rush it through to meet, meet, the, meet the deadline um, for the big December release. And he took the print, uh, the story goes, he took a print to DC thinking he could uh, show it and then cut it and assemble it to how he wanted it to be 
after the previews, but he never got the chance. Um, and he, he, he harboured that one. He, he felt that we never saw his version of the film. I believe there was a director's cut DVD that came out that just added scenes as opposed to... It was certainly wasn't. I, I may be wrong about this. You have to be careful with Star Trek because everybody knows everything. I do believe, Kevin, that's not quite right. Um, but uh, there is a, ver- a version called the director's cut which has added scenes in it. I'm not sure anything's missing or recap. Anyway, I don't know. I should look that one up, shouldn't I? Because you're dealing with fire. <laughs> Getting your Star Trek facts wrong. Um, here in Upfield, it was another four-week booking. Blimey! You wait 20 years for one and then two come along at the same time. Uh, it started slow, but um, it built as it got nearer and nearer to uh, Christmas, uh, the Christmas holidays. 431, that was three days. It happened on a Thursday or a Wednesday or something, because remember we were still Saturday, Sunday change. Sunday to Saturday was the week in cinema. At that point, we hadn't moved to Fridays. We actually moved to Thursdays first for a bit and then to Fridays. But anyway, at that time, it was Sunday to Saturday. Uh, And then 891 admissions. Again, because it was outside the holidays, he probably wasn't doing enough matinees. Then 1,573 admissions and then 577 admissions. I remember him being quite happy about it. As happy as he ever got about Star Trek. He hated Star Trek. And he hated that we loved Star Trek. I don't know why. I had a real thing about it. Uh, the soundtrack is another Jerry Goldsmith classic, and the main theme we heard earlier would go on to be used in the Next Generation TV series some years later. In fact, it became the sort of de facto um, music, didn't it, for Star Trek, really? Uh, here's a great cue that accompanies Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy as Scotty gives them a spectacular tour around the uh, exterior of the Enterprise in a small shuttle as she sits in space dock. Even now I find the sequence quite moving. My wife absolutely despairs.
Very good. The Enterprise from Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was the film that finished the year off. 
in Uckfield in 1979. Um, it's incredible now to think how shocked we were about how much Shatner and Nimoy had aged. <laughs> uh, when we re-watched it recently, um, now we're going, blimey, they look so young. Funny old world, innit? Um, one of the things I do remember about that film, and forgive me if this is not interesting, is um, the sound on it was impossible. It was a very early Dolby stereo track, or one of the early Dolby stereo tracks, and they started to... Uh, how can I be less boring about this? Most of the time we had what they called dual inventory, so there were mono prints and there were stereo prints, but Star Trek, they were all stereo prints. And there was no gain on it. It was terrible. We had to run it. We literally had to run it on 11, I seem to remember. I came home for Christmas time and uh, Peter Proj was tearing what left of his hair out and because um, you had to run it on 11. <laughs> we literally could hardly hear it, which for a Star Trek film is not great, is it? Now, I, it may have been, you know, our cells. And, oh, no, 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 this is too technical. It's going to get terrible. Anyway, um, it was successful enough, of course, uh, despite the carping, to completely relaunch the idea of Star Trek. And in 1982, we got what is certainly the best Star Trek film, really, The Wrath of Khan. Um, here is one more track from the soundtrack, um, the rather lovely Elias theme.
What a great all-round score that is. Jerry Goldsmith's music from Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, a very big film for Arkfield to finish the year off, the tumultuous year where we went from one screen to two. Um, a very big event in my life and the life of the cinema and had a, a dramatic effect and saved us and did all of those things. Now, um, before we finish, we're almost-ish done. We've got a couple more things to do. But one... Um, one more track, uh, or one more thing. <laughs> uh, it's a Hal Ashby film. Another Hal Ashby film. Sorry, everybody. Uh, it didn't play until 1980, so I'm cheating slightly here. But it did come out in 1979, and I did want to mention it uh, because it remains one of my favourite films. It's called Being There. Peter Sellers' finest moment outside the work he did with the Bolting Brothers in the late 1950s and early 60s. He really should have got the Oscar, uh, but it went to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer. A fine performance, but, you know, I think Peter Sellers was better. And he deserved it. I mean, for, for the body of work and all that stuff. The story of Simpleton Chance, uh, a simpleton called Chance, a gardener, who's forced to leave the house he grew up in, having never been outside the grounds uh, when the old man who employs him dies. Now, he sort of uh, he gets knocked over by the wife of a, of a diplomat, a, a politically uh, influential businessman, and they sort of take him into their house, and they think he's really smart. They think he's called Chancy Gardner because they mishear him, and he just talks in these epithets about gardening in in the winter, you know, in the spring, there will be growth. And everyone misinterprets this as an absolutely uh, a keen political mind. And he rises and rises, and nobody can see. I think the doctor sees, doesn't he? That brilliant scene is where the doctor says, you really are a gardener, aren't you? And he sees the tears in his eyes. It's just wonderful film. Um, Shirley MacLaine, Melvin Douglas actually won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. I think that was his second one. Don't know what he won the first one for. Might have been Ninochka, don't know. And the music was by uh, Johnny Mandel, sort of riffing on Eric Satie. There's Eric Satie woven in and out of it. And the remarkable scene at the end when um, the old man has died and it's the funeral and Chance, or Chancey, goes uh, wandering off across the pond, walking on the water. Still don't understand why. <laughs> And all the time, the people carrying the coffin are plotting to uh, rise him and take him even further up the political chain and whispering about the possible chance of him even becoming the next president of the United States.
Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. Yep, it's another non-sync classic to take us out because I've horribly run over. So one or two things I had lined up. I can't do. Yeah, this Nelson Riddle album. Boy, we wore a hole in this one. So that's it. The 70s are over and we've got to work out what to do for the next three weeks. That's okay. We'll think of something. But what a decade it was for the Picture House in Uckfield, the cinema that I'm still there, you know. Some things never change, you know. But we went from a struggling single screen to a struggling two screens. But the two screens are what made the difference. Just to give you some instinct, uh, some idea, rather, inkling, 45,000 was the number of admissions uh, we would have had. Uh, we did have in that, uh, was it six months we were open? Scaled up, that would be about 60,000 admissions. So it was a huge success and would continue to keep us afloat. So hats off to him. Well done, Dad. You pulled it off. So that's it. Thank you very much for uh, joining me. I love you all. Please do get in touch with the show and we'll see you next week for something mysterious. I don't know. What could it possibly be? Oh, tune in and find out and all that stuff. Alrighty. Night-night. <laughs>